Welcome to Choosing Leadership and this is another episode of the Investor's Lens series with your host Somit Gupta. This series will look at leadership from the point of view of an investor or a VC. In each episode of this series we will explore what traits, behaviors or red flags investors see in their founders that they work with and how founders evolve over time as they grow and become better leaders. I am here to help the best leaders get better and to create organizations where people get to do the work of their lives. Together let us do our bit to create a world where all of us can show up as leaders. With that let us get started. Mark is a managing partner at Omnivore based in India. He is funding entrepreneurs building the future of agriculture and food systems. In the interview Mark shares why he moved to India 16 years ago and why he has been in India ever since. He shares the important role intentionality and people's backgrounds play in their success or failure especially when it comes to founders and startups he shares how disaster and triumph are both temporary and what is important is resiliency hi mark and welcome to the choosing leadership podcast hi sumit nice to be here it's wonderful to have you here with us today to begin with can you share who you are and what do you do Sure. My name is Mark Khan. I am a managing partner of Omnivore. We are a venture capital firm based in India that backs startups in the agri-food and agri-tech sector. So we support entrepreneurs building breakthrough technologies for agriculture, food, climate, and the rural economy. Yeah. Can you share a bit more of your backstory and how did you end up where you are today? Uh, sure. So. I originally moved to India back in late 2007. I'm originally American and educated at the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard Business School. Was working in the agribusiness sector for Syngenta when I originally moved to India. I joined Goldridge Agrovet, the agribusiness arm of the Goldridge Group. I was there until 2013. Uh was part of the team that led the turnaround of Goldridge Agrovet and Omnivore started under originally the Goldridge umbrella and then eventually spun out to become independent. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And what led to that move from the US to India? So, I would say that I was a child of the brick report in the early 2000s there was incredible bullishness on emerging markets and that was one of those big themes of the era like maybe AI is today, right? When people were looking at the future this is something that they thought was going to be big. I I had some prior agribusiness experience and had arrived at Harvard Business School with the intent of a career in emerging markets and mm-hmm. I had been to India many times before had a personal affinity for it and decided that maybe this would be interesting and bet my career on it ultimately built a firm here and yeah it's been a long time now 15 16 years yeah yeah and how has that moved and the work that you have done since then shaped you as a leader and a, as a person i think people find it a bit funny like i'm a ferang but i've worked 16 years of my life in india let's be clear like i have how many years of work ex excluding business school 6 like 22 so 16 out of 22 of my working years have been in india so it's i am more like NRIs that moved to the US or Canada or the UK straight after graduate and how American or British those people have become that's how they see I've become 
it's it, India's where I've spent most of my adult life. So it has definitely shaped me as a person, as a businessman, as a leader, it's shaped the way I think about opportunities. It's shaped the way I manage people. Uh, yeah, it's very much in my blood. Thank you. Thank you for adding that bit. In your role as an investor, what leadership traits do you look for for founders or for teams when you make a decision to invest or not to invest? Look, people talk a lot of crap about what they want to see in founders. You will hear a million platitudes about hustle. Mm -hmm. You lots of people talk about, oh, they'll walk through walls. It's all fine. These things are all true. When we look for founders that we want to back, I look a lot at this issue of intentionality. Why do you want to be an entrepreneur? No, I want to be an entrepreneur because some bullshit. You know, actually, why do you want to be an entrepreneur? It's almost like asking someone, why are you mentally ill? Like, why do you want to screw your own happiness? Because there needs to be real motivation, not to start up, but to survive. What drives someone fundamentally? And usually the most successful entrepreneurs, they have some tremendous, this is going to gonna sound weird to people, but they have some tremendous darkness in them. They have some tremendous pain. They have some void that they are filling by what they do. Maybe it's in their childhood. Maybe, right, it was the humiliation of growing up poor. Maybe it was the child that didn't perform as well in school because they had terrible ADHD or dyslexia and everyone thought they were stupid, right? That's the story of the founding of JetBlue in the US, the airline, right? It was basically this guy who was an academic failure who was like, no, I'll show you assholes who I am, right? Clearly, some deep level of mental illness that drives Elon Musk rooted in a childhood that seems in some ways torturous. I think the truth is the most successful entrepreneurs are not normal people and shouldn't be. And so we really try to understand motivation, true, deep, psychic kind of motivation, right? Psychological kind of motivation, which is hard to assess, but that's, we think it matters quite a bit. And then the other thing is, I think it matters a lot how people look at networks and talent and also being very secure in themselves. One of the biggest failures we see again and again in startups is a CEO who needs to be the smartest person in the room on everything. In which case, they will never hire people that are better than themselves in anything. And they'll fail. And one of the things that you really want to see, and honestly, that's sometimes why a lot of these IT, I, like people always talk about, the, if you went to IIT, you'll get funding. If you didn't go to IIT, you won't get funding and all that. It's not really true. There's some truth to it, but it's not 100% true. But one of the good things about the IIT kids is you get to IIT and you're JE something from some state and you think you're really smart. And within six months, you learn how stupid you are. Because there's always someone smarter. There's always someone who can work harder. There's always, it's an amazing discovery process. Same thing at Harvard for us, right? 
you go in thinking you're brilliant. And then three months later, you're like, holy shit, why did they let me in here? Yeah. So I think that's the good thing about people from that background. But by the way, I've still seen people from that background who are super insecure about hiring that incredible talent that they definitely need. So I think when we back a startup, increasingly, yes, we have all these standard things we look for, but I think increasingly, we really try to understand the intentionality and motivation of the entrepreneur and what that's rooted in, which is hard to tell because it's never the story that people tell you. Everyone tells you a pretty story, but or they tell you a sob story, but it's hard to really ascertain the, the true drivers, which is like sitting on a therapist's couch. And then we try to understand whether this person is going to be able to attract talent and be willing to build the kind of team around them that mm -hmm. will succeed. Yeah. And how do you balance the two, right? Because the one thing which you mentioned is some kind of darkness or childhood problems or struggle, which gives you that desire to succeed or to prove something. And I can see how that gives a lot of strength, a lot of resilience a lot of personal willpower, but at the same time, that can come in the way of relationships, that can come in the way of, yeah. as you said, building teams of people who are better than you. And that can lead to very destructive work culture. So how do you balance that personal drive, motivation with that? There's yeah. no one answer. Everyone has to figure out what that looks like for themselves. And sometimes that's why it's so good to have a team of founders as opposed to anyone, because everyone has their own struggle but everyone is also comfortable with different kinds of people. One of the reasons we don't really like solo founders very much is they become their own bottlenecks. And there's no one else as an equal to weigh in on critical issues. And so whatever your bias is becomes the company bias. Whatever your bottleneck is become, becomes the company bottleneck. And startups are really hard. They're, it's better when you have two or three or sometimes even four equals. They don't have to exactly the same equity state, but equal co-founders that, that are building something. Yeah, They balance yeah. each other out. It balances the, the ambient stress, right, across a network instead of mm -hmm. it resting solely on the head of one person. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Are there any red flags also that you look to avoid when investing in companies or startups apart from the solo founder one that you mentioned? There are many. One of my favorites is what I call the rich kid startup. Okay. I have a simple rule. If your father and mother have more money than my fund, please don't ask me for money. Okay. That's just weird, bro. That's just, and what you'll find is you'll have these kids from these, uh, is this mostly a global viewership or an Indian viewership? This is, this is a global viewership. Okay. So there's a kind of a Hindi term that we use called a lala. A lala describes a traditional businessman. Okay. Yeah. And you'll find these kids from kind of lala families, right? Traditional business families. Dad's worth a couple hundred million dollars. Okay. And they'll be like coming to us, trying to raise 3 million bucks. And it's, what's your family money in it? And they're like, no, no, Papa told me to go raise this from VCs. And it's, oh, did Papa tell you that? Papa can't say it. Like, what? Sorry, no. Okay. That's an ultimate, like, that's a red flag for sure. It's your father just told you to offload risk on some institutional investor. Great. That's one. We, one thing that we've noticed in all of our years of operations, which is we largely back startups that while they might be headquartered in Bangalore or Delhi or Chennai or Pune, 
operate in rural India. And so we've seen that our best founders are people that grew up not in first tier cities. It's not that every one of our founders is the child of a farmer or grew up in a village, but most of our good founders grew up in third and fourth tier cities and district headquarters and grew up in rural India or grew up very adjacent to rural India. If we see a founder that grew up in the richest neighborhoods of India in Malabar Hill, right? Civil lines in Delhi or Gilmarg, right? Indranagar, right? Yeah. It's not that we'll never look at those startups, but we question whether people from that kind of background are really going to be able to successfully build ventures that are farmer facing and operate in rural India. But yeah, there's a lot of, there's plenty of red flags. We care a lot about the quality of people's work experience. If I see a CV and you switch jobs every 12 to 18 months and you've done five or six of those, not, we sure as hell won't back you. We probably won't even hire you into a startup. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of things we look for that we consider red flags. Yeah. And as people evolve in their journey as founders, they taste success as well as failures. What are some of those pitfalls, both in terms of success and failure, that you help your founders manage? Because I think both success and failure can trip you up. So how do you navigate that relationship with your founders as they move on in, on their journey? I would look at it this way. There's a, there's a very famous poem that's taught to school children across the Commonwealth, if you will, by Kipling called If. Right. And there's, it's this one of these things you learn, no, you don't really learn it in America, but you learn it in Canada. And there's a line in this great poem by this, I guess, now canceled British imperial author, which is if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, there is no triumph. Mm. There is no disaster. In Hindi, right? It's all these things are very temporary. And if you feel the moment you feel like you're at your peak of triumph, I, I promise you disasters around the corner. And the second you're in the darkest day of disaster, your triumph may be six months away. Resiliency is more important and, and understanding that there's no amount of external validation that is ever going to be enough ever, ever it, it and you can see this in the lives of high performing people. Like there is, there are. If you take your typical Indian startup founder, right? Those people lived for years working, studying harder, slaving away, mugging constantly, ending hobbies, missing holidays just for those 10th board results. Yeah. And that happiness lasted about a week. And then JE. And you slave and you slave and you slave and you get into IIT and that happiness lasts for a month. Right. And then it's all about getting a job. And then after that, it's about cracking the cat. And then it's all about placement on campus. And eventually you start realizing that hopefully you start realizing that none of this is actually the source of lasting happiness. It's nice. It's economically very comfortable if you play your cards right. But triumph and disaster are close relatives. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you see leaders come to that realization? Is it just a natural process or? No by getting their asses kicked. It's by suffering failure. It's by understanding that success is short-lived. It's by finding better sources of motivation. It's by, I don't know, I think sometimes it's just age. Sometimes it's experience. 
It's why you meet people in their 60s and they're much happier than people in their 40s or 30s, right? Eventually, that notion that like with age comes wisdom, some truth to it. Eventually, right? If I think about the shit that used to freak me out, like company would be like, oh my God, this deal fell through and we only have, right, nine months of cash in the bank and blah, 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 blah. That's 2013, me would be freaking out. 2023, me is, yeah, it'll be fine. And to be clear, it's like, then we go help the entrepreneur make it fine. But like the ambient level of stress, the more you do this, the more you see how hard it is. And the more that you see that this, these moments where you think you're failing, you're not. These moments where you think you're succeeding, you're also not. The more you get, I'm not even, it's not like Zen about the whole thing. It's just understanding that information is very incomplete. The future is not written and things can turn on a dime. Our, we had a portfolio company that we exited in the largest agri-tech exit in India about a year. Okay. And I remember we had originally invested in that company many years ago. And I remember, I guess about five or six years ago, six, six, yeah, like six years ago, that company had like $10,000 in the bank. It was about to shut down. Like they couldn't meet payroll. They were shutting down. It was over stories, over game, over done. Comes roaring back to life. One, they took the same product, sold it to a different market got traction, raised money, scaled massively, became profitable and exited. One of our best companies in our portfolio from our earlier days, God, almost died in in, in COVID as COVID started. Just almost died. And yeah, you just get sad about the whole thing. And to be clear, like, this is one of those, like, easy for the VC who has 40 portfolio companies to say, but for that individual founder, it's probably hell. I agree. But I think it's also useful to understand that, like, information is very incomplete. Yeah. And just don't, you don't know what's happening, what the next move on the board is. Thank you for sharing that. Can you share more of your vision? What is your vision now as a fund and why do you invest in the kind of companies that you do? I've been working for almost two decades in, in Indian ag. And for those people that, that don't come from an ag background, which is lots of people, especially people that listen to podcasts, India is a very unique agricultural ecosystem. For starters, there are 130 million farmers. It's like a lot of farmers, incredible number of farmers. Together with their families, they're about 600 million people. It's about 40% of India's population. And most of them are poor, the vast majority. India is a country that has seen tremendous success over the last 30 years, let's say 30 years, since liberalization. And I think the, the best days for the country are still ahead of it. But as we look to building an India... Over the, as we look to building India over the next many decades, you either solve the problem of Indian agriculture or half the country falls behind. And that problem is complex. That problem is about farmer incomes. That problem is about jobs. It's about infrastructure. It's about environment and sustainability and climate. But It's also a sector that has tremendous promise. India is the largest amount of arable land in the world. It produces every crop known in the world. 
it has the most biodiversity of any one country in the world from an agricultural perspective. So if you get it right, you build an engine for rural prosperity. If you get it right, you build an engine for exports. If you get it right, you radically reduce rural inequality and, and in general income inequality. It is potentially a sector that can build a better, more fair, more equal India. Mm. And that means holding hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. I don't know, seemed like a good problem to work on when I was, when I first started exploring the space as a 26 year old, 25 year old. And now as a 44 year old, I'm happy that I've spent the better part of two decades working on it. A lot has changed. We still have a lot further to go, but the vision at Omnivore is that we back mm. the disruptors, we back the transformers, we back the visionaries, right? That are going to change this space. And yeah, there are other people that the government plays a big role and there's lots of big corporates and multinationals. But as I oftentimes say, I'm not in the Royal Navy. I work with the pirates. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah. And I think more so in a developing country or more so in a emerging market economy rather than somewhere in the West. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So before, before we wrap it up, since now that you have that vision, you are working, right? As you said, with the pirates, what on a day-to-day -day basis, what gives you the most joy and satisfaction at the end of the day? Honestly, I think I get tremendous energy working with entrepreneurs that are trying to solve very hard problems. Obviously, we get a lot of energy when we go out and see the impact of our portfolio in, in rural India. Like that's unbelievably cool. Mm. But we also spend a lot of time sitting in offices in Delhi while people build wireframes of apps and prototypes of IoT. And I think the real joy of being a VC is seeing these things go from ideas to scale to huge amounts of execution. It's just cool, man. Yeah. It's just really cool to see what you can do to change this world and to work with a bunch of people that want to change the world. That's the best part of the job. Yeah. Thank you for adding that. I think that's amazing. And I think that's something which almost every VC that I speak to also reflects back that difference that is being made through their money or through their efforts is what gives them the most satisfaction, even if maybe that not, is not necessarily the reason they started out in the first place. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, for sharing everything that you shared, for being who you are and for doing what you do. And for anybody who's listening, who wants to reach out, find out more about what you are up to, what is the best way for them to do so? The easiest thing is reach out to Omnivore on our website. And if you're looking to pitch us, that's the best way to do it. Otherwise, it's very easy to reach me at mark at the rate omnivore.bc. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, for sharing that. And I want to wish you all the best for everything that lies ahead for you. Thank you very much. Take care. Yeah, it was a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Choosing Leadership with Sumit Gupta. I choose leadership every time I record this podcast and I invite you to do the same. I invite you to design a life of joy, meaning, pride and satisfaction. This is what I do most naturally, to lovingly and gently provoke you, to help you see your own light, to help you see what you are already capable of. 
If you like the sound of it, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs ups, ratings and reviews mean a lot to me and my team. I want to thank everyone who contributed to making this show a reality. And thank you for listening. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved and you matter. This is Sumit and until next time, keep choosing leadership.